hopefully we all stay in tune and together on some of those things, but either way, uh, praise Him that we get to come here and sing His praises today. Amen? Amen. All right, today we are in um, week four of this series that's going to go on longer than I anticipated it as I laid it out on the calendar today, but uh, it's good. It's good because this whole series that we've called What We Believe and Why We Believe It is centered around our statement of faith, and the point of these sermons is to look at the things we say we believe, the things that we all affirmed as we joined in covenant membership here with one another um, that are true about God and looking to the Bible to see why it is we believe what we say we believe, right? It's easy to sit there and just check out and go on autopilot and say, yeah, I believe this, and, and someone look at you and say, well, why? And say, well, I guess, because I believe it, right? Now, we want to give, like First uh, Peter tells us to, a reason for the hope that's within us, right? We want to give an apologia, that's the Greek word, and so that's why we're looking at these doctrines we confess uh, in our statement of faith and looking to the Bible to back them up. Uh, this week is a bit of a follow-up to last week's sermon, right? Last week we looked at the doctrine and our belief in the Trinity. That is um, uh, the part of our statement of faith that affirms this historic orthodox position that Christians have believed from even the earliest times of the church, that there is one God and only one God, yet this one God exists eternally as three equal persons. Not three gods, but one God with three persons. Not three manifestations of God at different times in history as He reveals Himself. No, one God who is and always has been three distinct persons who share the same divine nature. That is what Christians believe about God. That is what Christians have traditionally confessed about God. And there have been others who have come along and challenged that belief. But this is the understanding as we look at Scripture about who God is and what His nature is, uh, as best I think as our human minds can comprehend it. Amen? All right, so I think there's our one-minute review on what we looked at last week in this doctrine of the Trinity. And as we follow it up today, we're going to uh, kind of start the second part of what that uh, sermon was, right? And we're going to be looking at each individual person that makes up uh, the triune God. And this week we're starting with our belief in God the Father. Let's go ahead and click to the next slide and let's take a look at what our statement of faith actually says we believe. This is, what, uh, this is what we say we believe. We believe in God the Father, an infinite personal spirit, perfect in holiness, wisdom, power, and love. We believe that He concerns Himself mercifully in the affairs of each person, that He hears and answers prayer, and that He saves from sin and death all who come to Him through Jesus Christ. As we think about this statement that we just read today, that we profess to believe, I want to turn our attention to Matthew 6. Uh, we'll start in verse 5. And we're going to take a minute to read this passage together, so go ahead and open up your Bibles right now. And this is a passage of Scripture, I'm sure when you get there, that's going to be very familiar to you. And we're going to be looking at it from a slightly different angle than what we normally would. Right? This passage, of course, is Jesus teaching how to pray. This passage we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And as we look at the Scripture right now to inform us on why we believe what our statement of faith says we believe, I think in these 10 verses right here, we see elements of God's character and His nature that are expressed in this example of prayer Jesus gives us that I think will help us to build a clear biblical backing for why we believe what we believe. So go ahead and take a minute right now, if you're not there yet, and open up to Matthew 6. And we're going to read that together here in just a second. It was a good time for a water break, was it? 
All right. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your rooms and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, and we also, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So this piece of scripture we've just read today, this is Jesus teaching people how they should pray. Right? This is a pattern that Jesus says, look at how I'm reaching out to Father, and when you pray, pray like this. I think Jesus is the right person to look to if we wanted an example on how we should pray, right? Because we know from Scripture that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This is what Colossians 1 says about Him. We know uh, Jesus is the one referenced by John. When he says in chapter 17 of his gospel that no one has seen God the Father except the Son who has made him known. And in chapter 10 of John's gospel, Jesus makes the statement that he and the Father are one. So if there is ever someone who walked the earth who could speak to the character and nature of God and how it is we should approach God and how it is we should view God in heaven, I think Jesus is the one to do it. Amen? As we ponder one of the mysteries of one God and three persons, and we look at this passage and see this first person of the Trinity who Jesus tells us to call Father, I think we're going to see today that main idea that we have up on the screen right there, right? And that main idea is that in the person of the Father, we see perfect power, wisdom, and love, and He has adopted us through Christ as His children. So this first person of the Trinity, God the Father, we see these attributes of perfect power, wisdom, and love. And we see Him as Father because His Son Jesus has died for us to wash us clean of our sins and to adopt us into this family of God as spiritual children. I say that right now too, and part of me fears that I don't give that statement enough gravity that it deserves. Because this is a statement, thinking about the fact that this eternal, all-powerful, omnipotent, omnipresent God who holds the power of life and death and judgment in His hands, who will one day come and bring all of history to its final conclusion and roll this world up and create a new heavens and a new earth. This God who holds this kind of power, we get to come before Him and call Him Father. I think we miss that day to day. I think that's an extraordinary truth, right? And I think it's something that we take for granted. We take it like as if it's common knowledge because we live in a world 
that has been so heavily influenced by the Christian faith to this point that it's just assumed that, of course, yeah, God, we talk to God as Father. It's not universally true. Other religions don't think that. Christians are unique in many ways in coming to God as Father. And we take it for granted. We miss the amazing blessing that we have before us with that. Well, we're looking at this particular topic today. We're doing it because we want to see what the Bible says about why we believe what is true about God. But I think there's a second reason that's important for us today, and that's that second line up on the screen, right? That why. Why are we looking at this passage? Why are we having this topic of conversation? This is more than just an affirmation of belief, but this is taking what we believe and putting it into practice. Amen? And that why that I've got up there for us is that even though, or through his, sorry, I read that wrong, that's according to Screen Glory, that through his son Jesus, we get to come to the foot of the throne of the Almighty God. And we get to come to him as children in faith. We don't come as enemies for punishment because we're in Christ. We don't just come merely as servants, but we get to come to Yahweh, the maker of all heaven and earth, as children in faith. The perfect, wise, powerful, loving God who is responsible for all things we see and all the things we can't see, even down to the tiny, most microscopic molecule, to the brightest, most brilliant, burning star in the sky. That's all His. And we get to come before this God and draw near to Him and to be close to Him and to be in relationship with Him. And I desperately hope today that as we ponder this doctrine of God the Father and we think about what we believe and why we believe it, that we don't just leave here with more knowledge today, but we walk out the door praising His name in ways that we haven't in a while, maybe. Maybe ways that we didn't when we walked in the door. And we're praising His name because of this truth that comes from us being children adopted by God the Father through His Son, Jesus. I was getting ready this week for this particular sermon, I was watching some uh, videos and reading some, some things to, to try and help gain some insight on what to share with the church today. And as I was watching uh, um, a video from R.C. Sproul teaching on God the Father uh, from many years ago, he kind of hit on this very topic and this very uh, thing that I'm, I'm mentioning right now. And he, he kind of mentions about how strange this idea is to the rest of the world that God is our Father and how we miss it. I'm going to read what he said here real quick. He said, now quickly in the Old Testament, there are times when God is referred to as the Father. But when a Jewish child was taught to pray, he was given several, 30, 40 different appropriate forms of address to God. So that if, there, if he was going to pray, he said it's appropriate to address God in this way. It's not appropriate to address God in another way. Just like when we teach our children, you don't sass your parents. You don't be impolite. And we learn how to call the minister reverend and the professor doctor and all of that sort of thing. There were prescribed titles that were appropriate forms of address for God. The personal direct form of address of calling God the Father is noticeably absent from these Jewish lists. And we go over this in more detail in our Christology series, but I'll mention it again here, that this is a fact that most people aren't aware of, that nowhere in the Old Testament or in any existing Hebrew documents do we ever find a Jewish person addressing God directly in the form of a, per, of a personal address as Father, until the 10th century A.D., till a thousand years after Christ in Italy, with one notable exception. 
a Jewish rabbi from Galilee in the first century whose life is recorded in history. Many of his public and private prayers are recorded, and in every single prayer this rabbi prays except one. He directly addresses God as Father. This concept we believe is a foreign concept the world over. That an all-powerful God is approachable. And He's one that Jesus tells us to come to with the title of Our Father. This is the God that we have revealed to us in the Bible. This is the one that we say we believe because of it. We believe, as our statement of faith says, that God the Father is an infinite, personal spirit, perfect in holiness, wisdom, power, and love. And as we dig into our text now, I think right now in verses 6 to 9, if you look back at those with me, we're going to see some of those characteristics on display. Make sure you have your Bible open so you can glance back with me as we talk about a few of these things. We said God is infinite and personal. God is everywhere, all the time, with no beginning and no end. Isaiah chapter 46, uh, we see God described by the prophet like this. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. Your transgressors remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Here in Isaiah, we see this description that God is God, and there is no other. This statement that He declares the end from the beginning, that He has His plans and His purposes and His will, and He's going to do it, and He's going to accomplish it, and He has through all of human history. From the very beginning, from the ancient times, all the way until He says when the end comes. This God who wields such tremendous power, who knows no ends or human limits, is infinite in such a way that Jesus tells us in verse 6 of Matthew 6, to go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father in secret. God doesn't need you out on the street corner. God doesn't need you up here in front of a group of people. God is with you, and He is near, and He sees you, even in the secret places you find yourself. God is an infinite personal spirit. He is almighty and He is present across the face of the earth. And even though this is true about Him, He's still personal. He hears the prayers of the saints because He is with them in the secret places. You see that in verse 8. What does Jesus tell us in verse 8? He says, Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Who do you have in your life that you can go to that knows your needs before you ask them? I mean, my wife. My wife is the closest person to me on the face of this earth, and I'm sure there are lots of things that she knows that I need that she'd be able to anticipate. But even then, that's not perfect, and she's the closest one to me. Who in the world do we have in this world that knows our needs before we even make them known? 
How close and how near to us is God? How infinite is God? He's already described himself, the one who's from ancient times declaring the end from the beginning, yet here we see him as personal and near. The God who not only hears our prayers in the secret places, but he can look into our hearts and into our souls to know exactly what we're thinking to know exactly what our needs are before we even ask. I think there's an interesting sort of side note on the nature of prayer there too that I don't want to necessarily totally go off on, but if God already knows what we need before we come, why do we pray? Right? He already knows. I think when I read that and I think about that and I ponder that mystery, it seems like prayer is less about asking God to just give me something as much as trying to take my will and conform it to His. Taking all my frustrations, hurts, anxieties, and desires, taking all of those things that are in me, laying them down at the feet of the cross, and being more and more conformed to Him and to His will, rather than just asking for stuff to accomplish my will. I don't want to go too far off that, because that could easily be a sermon in and of itself. But this God who is close to us, who knows our needs, even before we even make them known, He's infinite and He's personal. And we see those elements of God the Father right there in these first few verses of uh, Matthew 6. We also say in our statement of faith that God is perfect in holiness, wisdom, power, and love. If you glance back at verse 9 and 10, you see Jesus tell us to address God in prayer in a very certain way that I think shows us these attributes. How are we to address God in verse 9? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, you are not like us sinful people. God, you are above us. You are ruling in heaven. You are hallowed. That word hallowed right there, uh, just did a quick look up. I don't know Greek, but I, I know how to look up Greek and find the uh, definitions of words. But that word hallowed in the Greek originally is the same word we get the word holy from. You're holy. You are set apart. You are not like me. You are in heaven, ruling and reigning and all-powerful. And you are good. God, you are in heaven. You are to be revered. Lord, you are to be shown the utmost respect, right? This is someone who has tremendous power, who has tremendous wisdom. You think about walking into, um, the way you'd walk into somebody's office, right, who is some kind of high up elected official. You don't walk into the office of president, you know, and just sit down and kick your feet up on the desk and say, what's up, Mr. Prez? You walk in with a fear and a reverence and respect for the office and the place that you're at and the role that this person's at. And that's just the President of the United States. That's like small potatoes, right? This is God. This is Almighty God who we are coming before, who is perfect in holiness, wisdom, power, and love. And we get to come before Him calling Him Father. And we lay that down and say, Lord, You are holy, and I am not. And the only reason I'm getting to call You Father is because of Your grace towards me. 
It's amazing that this one who we come to proclaim is holy, and we come with reverence and awe. Jesus tells us to come and address him as Father. When we pray, and when we do this, we see that he is perfect in holiness. We see he is perfect in love. We see him telling us to come to him, not just merely out of fear, not just merely out of a, a sense of selfish desire to gain something we want, but to come to him as Father. There's a sense of intimacy. There's a sense of closeness that I think calling God Father shows us there. It's amazing, just in these couple of verses, we can see these characteristics come to life and just how we're told by Jesus to address God the Father. I think if we keep looking on and we look at verse 10, we see something interesting there. We see God's wisdom and power is on display in heaven. We see that God has a will. And we tell God, according to Jesus' uh, pattern for us, that we want to see this wisdom and power of God that reigns in heaven come down on the earth as well. We see Paul marvel in reverence at the perfect wisdom from our Father God in Romans 11, 33-36. Should be a pretty familiar passage to anybody who's been around for a while. We use that one as our benediction uh, through half of the book of Romans. Paul writes there, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We say in our statement of faith that God is perfect in wisdom, holiness, power, and love. And here in just these first few verses of the Lord's Prayer, we have Jesus laying out this exact picture of who God the Father is just through this instruction on how we are supposed to approach Him when we pray. I think while our focus so far has been... You can actually click the slide back a little bit. We're not quite there. There we go. He's holy, wise, powerful, and influential. That's our first point there. And that's been sort of the focus of the first few verses. But I think we see His love on display as well. Love is this characteristic we have listed in our statement of faith. And I think it's on display in ways that may be a little subtle to us at first glance. But as we look at verses 11, uh, 12, and 13, I hopefully we'll see God's kindness to us. In verse 11, Jesus tells us to ask God for what? Give us this day our daily bread. It doesn't mean the little magazines that come from over near the airport either, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, we need you. We need you, Lord. I need food. I need air. I need water. I need this stuff in my throat to go away. Lord, we need you. God provides provision. And in his provision... We see His grace and His love and His mercy at work in our lives. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve the breath that we just took, but God faithfully provides it for us. We see His love at work in His provision. Verse 12, 
Verse 12, what does Jesus say to ask for? Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts, Lord. Father does this by the Son paying the penalty that we owe. He loves us by giving us the Gospel. And He loves us by giving us forgiveness and eternal life that comes with it. Now the Father tells us, come to Me. I'll forgive you. Confess your sins. God shows us love. He could reject us. He could turn us away. We could come to Him and confess the things He already knows to be true about ourselves, and He could say, away with you, wicked and evil one. But He doesn't. He demonstrates love for us because He is perfect love, and He's accomplished it through His Son. Verse 13 tells us that, or lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God shows us love for us because He's not sitting there just tempting us. He's not always just wagging a carrot in front of our face trying to see if we're stumbling, and as we do, we kind of smack Him in the back of the head. He's not Lucy and Charlie Brown putting the football down, right? Trying to get Charlie Brown to come kick it, and then as soon as we see Him kind of take a step, like, whoop! Laughing at us as we kind of fall on our backside. No, God doesn't lead us into temptation. And He saves us. He saves us from the due penalty of sin. He deliver us, delivers us from evil. And He delivers us from the evil one. The one who would want to see us dragged down into hell with Him. I think through this prayer and through this way, Jesus tells us to approach God. We see every element of those first couple of phrases of our statement of faith. We see um, God in all His wisdom and His power, but we see God in this perfect love that He demonstrates to us as God the Father and the way that He cares for us. Because we get to approach Him and say, God, Father in Heaven, I need You. And You promised, You said in Your Word, that You're going to take care of me and take care of these things. Through this prayer, through the way Jesus tells us to approach God, we see this perfect love for the Father, or of God the Father, and we see specifically how He cares for us here. This love of the Father that we're talking about here is uh, we see in Matthew 7. So just a little bit further on, if you saw your Bibles open, you, you could see it there too. But in Matthew 7, uh, Jesus describes fatherly love like this. He says, of which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Even sinful humans know what's good to give their children, and they do it out of their love for them. How much more, as Jesus says, do we find this to be true about God the Father? And here in verses 11 to 13 of the Lord's Prayer, we see all of these elements that we have as we approach the Father. Our good Father, who is not like our fathers here on earth, who are stained by sin and so often fall short of the way they are to love and care for their children. But Jesus tells us to come to our Father in heaven and to pray in this way because through Him we are made children of God and we can come before our Father seeking for His provision 
and for his saving grace and for power to war against our sin that seeks to destroy us and for wisdom for how we're to live our lives and for his will to which we are to conform and be a blessing to our families and our neighbors and our church and the world. I think it's amazing that just in this prayer that Jesus is teaching us and we see how we are to approach God in prayer the way uh, we see the nature and the character of God on display. It can't be lost on us. This is the getting into the second part here of the sermon, the second part of our statement of faith. It can't be lost on us that God the Father, as uh, described in John chapter 4, as spirit, and we can't uh, let it be lost on us that in chapter 6 of John, he tells us that no man has seen the Father. And that's why I think it's so important here, because we have Jesus telling us that God our Father, who is the one worthy of all reverence and respect and praise, he's not just some distant king far off in the corner of the universe somewhere. He's not a distant deity, like point one says, right? Who's just out there in the ether that just set things into motion and told us to just go figure it out on our own. We didn't see that in the first few verses here of the Lord's Prayer. That's not who God is because the Lord is telling us to go to God with these things. He's personal. He's relational. He wants us to come to Him. God's not a watchmaker. That's a popular view of God, especially amongst um, deists who just think that, oh yeah, there is a God. I can't deny that. True, but He's not personal. He's not intimate. He doesn't care about the affairs of humanity. He made it and He set it into motion and He let it go, right? That's not who God is. That's not who God is. I think there's another false way to go thinking. I remember having this conversation with somebody in a place I used to work with when I would talk about God's personal nature and how He is um, personally present in the world and working in the lives of people. And the guy looked at me and said, well, that's just dumb. That'd be like me sitting here trying to spin a bunch of plates. Right? I'm trying to keep one plate going and the next one's falling off. That'd be, that'd be silly for God to be like that. Um, neither one of those ideas are true about God. God is intimate and personal with His creation. And God could spin plates forever if He wanted to and never get tired. These ideas that we have so often betray the idea that God is Father because it would tell us that He's cold and uncaring or that He's lacking in power and ability, that He's unconcerned with humanity and the struggle and the strife that goes on in this world. And like we just said a second ago, that could not be farther from the truth of who God has revealed Himself to be in Scripture. Just a little bit further on in the text of Matthew 6, Jesus affirms the fact that God is present and working in the world. You still have your Bibles open to Matthew 6. You can glance down at verse 25 with me. And Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. 
Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's not a picture of a God who doesn't care or is not involved in his creation. God's hands are on all of creation, and Jesus gives all the credit to God the Father. He gives him credit for the food that sustains the birds and for the beauty of the flowers in the field. And we're reminded in this passage here that God is not far from us, but He is ever-present, and He shows care and concern for His creation. And as Jesus says here, especially for His children in faith, for those who are seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. I think we see this same idea confirmed for us again in 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, where Peter repeats Jesus' calls to cast your anxiety on God our Father. In 1 Peter, he writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. He cares for you. We see God is near, and we see His concern for our needs. He's not distant. He's not far away. He's not just left us to our own devices, but He's here and He's present and He's with us. And that leads us to that second point that's on the slide there, is that God answers the single greatest need that is present in every single one of our lives. Our single greatest need in every one of our lives is to be forgiven of our sins and to be saved from that enemy, death. We're all heading to the grave. It's just a fact. What happens when that ends? Who are we talking to when our eyes close for that final time? And what are we trying to say to them? Do we stand before God and say, well, look, God, you know, I I did this and this, and you, you didn't see that other stuff, right, that I did in secret, did you? Or do we stand before God on that day with the answer to that need? The answer being His Son, who He gave to forgive our sins. His Son, who He gave to bring us near to God because we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, who is our Savior. And being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, we've been adopted by God the Father to be His children forever. What answer do we give to God on the day of judgment? when we stand before Him and all that stuff that's in your head and in my head that we don't want anyone in this room to know is there, what answer do we give Him? Ephesians 2.13 says it like this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Father God has offered His Son as the payment for our debt to sin, And through this, He has reconciled man to Himself. And now we pray as Jesus says to, 
in this uh, passage that we've been looking at in Matthew 6. We pray asking Him to forgive our debts. God cares for us in such a way and He shows concern for the day-to-day dealings of people that He tells us in verse 14 and 15 that now we have been forgiven, that we should also forgive as well. I think there's a couple a spiritual and a practical implication for this. When we refuse to offer forgiveness of wrongdoing towards us, we often run the risk of forsaking the gospel and saying that the wrong that's been done to me here, it's greater than what God has forgiven. Even though we know and we believe the price that was paid on the cross was greater than anything we could ever require of somebody when we have been wronged. We never want to rob God of His glory and salvation. And we never want to take for granted what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And I think that's the spiritual element here that's at play in God's care and concern for us with our unforgiveness. Is that He's answered this ultimate, greatest need and we get to stand before Him as children in faith one day on the day of judgment rather than as those who will be punished for their sin. I think the command here at the Lord's Prayer has a practical element too. When we obey these words here and we forgive the way we see God, our Father in Heaven, forgive, there's blessing that comes from that in our own lives. And I think this is another aspect in which God the Father is not distant, but He has care and concern and His children in faith, best interests at heart. Nothing kills our souls inside quite like unforgiveness. There are many sins that when we live in them will be deadly to us. There's no doubt about that. An unforgiveness, when we live in that place, refusing to forgive, refusing to let go of the wrongs that people have done to us, refusing to let go of those things just drags us down. When we refuse to show the same kind of kindness that has been showed to us by God our Father. Not only does it maintain strife and division among people, but ultimately it becomes a stumbling block for us in our relationship with God the Father. It kind of becomes a monster inside of us when we're holding on to that unforgiveness. It creates strife inside of us. And it's doing more damage, more often than not, to our mental and spiritual well-being than anyone who has wronged us. One well, of my favorite pastors, Vody Bauckham, had a sermon that came out last year that um, was talking about the story of Joseph. This is a little off script, so I'm sorry, Dorn. But in the story of Joseph, he was making the point that everybody looks at the story of Joseph and they see the blessing at the end of the story as this redemption in this moment there, right? Joseph is made regent over all of Israel and has all this wealth and all this power before him. And this is the moment that everyone looks to as the lesson to Joseph. Persevere through hard times and God's going to bless you. But if you look at the story of Joseph and you look at his life, he's very particular about what he names his children and the way he lives his life to show that he's in Egypt and he's number two next to Pharaoh in Egypt, which gives him tremendous power and wealth. But Joseph says, this is not where I'm supposed to be. These are not my people. God is 
God and my Father are who I'm supposed to be with. This is a temporary holding spot that God is using, and this is not my final destination. And rather than holding on to all of these things, rather than holding on to all this pain and all this suffering and all this anger that I feel towards my brothers, I know that that's where I'm supposed to be with my people, my people of the God that I love and I serve. I love it in this sermon because he just flat out tells the church that's where he says, let that stuff go. Joseph was there, and he could have been angry. And he could have had his brothers killed and put to death. But he knew that Egypt wasn't his home, that his home was with the people of Jacob. And let that stuff go. Great sermon. I'll have to find it and share it with you guys. There may be times when there's going to be a person who has wronged you that refuses to repent. And I think this is where the command we see God the Father showing His direct care and concern for us tells us to forgive and to let those things go. And we know we can do that. Not because we've seen true repentance or we've seen people who have wronged us stop and change and turn from what they've done wrong. But we can do this because we know in His perfect power and wisdom and love that all sin will be dealt with. And when we obey this command, even when there is not reconciliation that comes about through repentance and forgiveness, this is a burden that we don't have to bear. And we can lay down this burden at the feet of our King who has shown us perfect love and care and concern for His children. And this is where we have this command to tell us to forgive others. There's a spiritual element and a, and a practical element that we deal with in our lives every day. Like it says on the screen right now, in point two, or point B, sorry, God offers us reconciliation to man through the forgiveness of sins. This has been won for us by His Son on the cross, and this is the plan and the will of the Father. We see Jesus say this, say as much in the Garden of Gethsemane before going to the cross in Luke 22. Here Jesus is praying before uh, He's about to be arrested and to be taken to be tried and beaten and killed on the cross. He goes to His knees in prayer and He says, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I'll click on to the next slide there for us too. That'd be great. As we focus most of our time so far on what our statement of faith affirms, what we believe about God the Father, this first person of the Trinity, I think this prayer of Jesus in Luke 22 is one of the aspects of the person of God the Father and the nature of the Trinity that we see in Scripture, but we haven't necessarily fully addressed in our statement of, uh, of who God the Father is. And it causes us to read our Scripture and to accept the fact that there is nothing quite like God. If you think about that logically, that would just kind of make sense, right? Because if there was something like God, then God wouldn't be the only one like Him, and so He wouldn't be God, right? So it's, it's a very logical statement when you think about it that, that way. 
But there is no other God like Him. There is no God that exists in the way that He does. And there's an air of mystery that the Scripture leaves us with as we look at verses like Luke twenty-two forty-two, where the Son, who is attested in Scripture as sharing an eternal and divine nature with the Father, He also comes to Father and prays to Him and says He's submitting to the Father's will. We see Jesus speak like this many times in the Gospels. For instance, uh, John 6.38, Jesus says, For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I think we see an element of a relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit when we look at passages like this. And we have to acknowledge that there's has been some kind of internal conversation going on in, with God that we have not been privy to. And for reasons that are God's and God's alone, we have this first person of the triune God that is God the Father who is so often credited with the plan and the will for the salvation of sinners that is accomplished through His Son Jesus. And this happens even though all three persons of God are of the same divine substance and nature and in their essence are all equal. What an amazing thought to think that this almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, exists in such a way that He reveals us or reveals Himself to us as our Father in heaven. There is none like Him. I know many of us did not have kind and loving fathers in this life, right, who instructed us and poured into us and raised us up. And many of us did not have the kind of father on we didn't have that kind of father on earth. I didn't have that kind of father on earth. That was not my relationship with my earthly father. But even if we, we didn't have that relationship and we didn't have that picture of what a good father is supposed to look like on earth, and even though our earthly fathers fail, even when you do have a, a faithful human father, we can look to our God, this amazing unlike anything else, God, who is one God in three persons. And in Him, we see one of those persons as a perfect, loving, caring Father. One who sits there and doesn't play around and toy with sin. Who deals with sin with the right kind of anger and wrath that it deserves. One who cares and is concerned with the well-being of his children, and one who we see providing for the needs of his people over and over and over again. And the first point of application from all of this today that we need to remember, hopefully every single day as we walk out the door today, is what a blessing it is to have a relationship with God, our Father in heaven. Most other religions don't look at God in this intimate and close kind of way. I think a perfect example of that is Islam. In Islam, the God of Islam is never approachable as Father. He is all-powerful, almighty, and you fall before Him, lucky to be nothing more than a servant. No Muslim would ever sit there and call God their Father. And that is a privilege how often we've taken for granted that this God of the universe, the all-powerful being who's made everything, tells us to come to Him 
as His children and call Him our Father. That's a privilege that I think should leave massive implications for how we live day to day. God is near. Do we live like it? He's close to us and He he cares for us and He provides for us. Do we live like that? He's our Father. Do we go to Him like He's a good Father who will guide us and direct us and instruct us and correct us? Or do we run from Him and try to figure it out on our own and dedicate our time to frivolous pursuits? I think something came to mind this morning as I was um, thinking about this aspect of it. I know I mentioned many of us haven't had great examples of fathers on this earth. I, I'm, I'm one of them. My relationship with my father was non-existent. And many of you know my father passed away. Many of you know my father passed away back in October of this 2022, right? And I could probably count on both hands the number of times I talked to him since I was 13 years old. Contrast that with my wife. We talk to her father on the phone every single day. Not in an overbearing way, in a great and encouraging and loving way. How do we treat God? Do I treat God like the relationship I had with my father? Where maybe I have a handful of conversations, occasional holiday? Or do I come to him for love and encouragement and correction and for help every single day, every single moment. Do we do that or do we live like nothing in our lives has changed after we've come to Christ? Do we live like our Father is not present and near all the time? Well, sin is tempting us. He is near. Turn from it and run to Him. When we're fearful and anxious, Turn to Him. He's near. When we're angry at our spouse or our children or our neighbor, do we live in our anger and our unforgiveness? Do we remember the price Jesus paid and we turn to our Father in Heaven to praise Him for His good gifts and the way He provides and cares for us? another element of Matthew 6 that I loved about when we were addressing this topic in this section that, uh, again, is often called the Lord's Prayer. I think it hits so many of the points that we want to implement and put in our own life. Number one, it's prayer. It's seeking God, coming before Him. Number two, we see in the Lord's Prayer all of these elements that we should be laying at the feet of our God every single day of our life. We're seeking Him. We're trusting Him. We're asking forgiveness from Him. We're praising Him for His glory and what He's done. We're remembering that He reconciled us through His Son to save us from evil and from the evil one. The one who, again, wants to drag us down to hell with Him. I think this is who we see God the Father is. This is what we say we believe and we confess in our statement of faith. I think it's an immense concept. 
that we just kind of walk around and don't think about enough. Our Father in heaven, He's with us. He is near to us. He cares for us because He's bought us with the blood of His Son. Let's praise Him today. Let's don't live life like we did before we came to Him. Let's truly lay down our will for His. Let's use that example of the Lord's Prayer and let's put that into practice day in and day out. Let's be those kind of people. Let's be those kind of Christians. The ones who the world looks at and says, you guys are a crazy bunch of weirdos. You actually believe what you say. Sounds good to me. Because there is a message of hope that we have here. There is a message of good news that we have here. And I want to look weird and I want the world to see that, and I want the world to ask me why, so when the time comes I can tell them, and I can point them back to Jesus, so they can have the same hope in them that I do in me. So that they know that they have a Father in Heaven who loves them and cares for them too. Let's pray. Father, we come before You in nothing but awe and reverence, and the fact that I get to address You as Father is far too often lost on me, Lord. God, what an amazing work you've done with your son, Jesus, on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for the atonement that he's given us, Lord, for providing salvation from our sins, for making us your children in faith, Lord. What an amazing, amazing gift that we just forsake day in and day out because we just get busy. Lord, help us break the blinders of this world, Lord, that cause us to not see you for all your glory. Father, I just pray that, um, that this picture of you that we've seen today, God, would just all be from you, Lord. If there's words that came from me, Lord, if there's words that I messed up and I didn't describe well, Lord, I just pray that they all die and nobody ever remembers them ever again. But God, I pray that the picture of your majesty would just be remembered as we walk out these doors today. And let it change us, God. Let us, let us remember that you are near, you are close, you care. And let us embrace that relationship with you as our Father right now. Thank you for that privilege and that honor through your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.